We live in a time of historical reconsideration as more and more people recognize that the sins of the past still haunt the present. For Native Americans, there can be no better remedy for the theft of land than land. And for us, no lands are as spiritually significant as the national parks. They should be returned to us. Indians should tend and protect and preserve these favored gardens again. Welcome to The Detour, a show about people and ideas from Oregon Humanities. I'm Adam Davis. Today on the show, we're exploring ideas of land and possession. This episode is inspired by a conversation we had with David Troyer in April 2021. David is an Ojibwe Indian from Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota, professor of English at the University of Southern California, and best-selling author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. We invited David to be part of our Consider This series after he wrote the article you just heard from. At the end of the show, you'll hear from Christine Dupre, a writer, teacher, and member of the Cowlitz tribe. Thanks for being here. David, it was the cover article in The Atlantic that inspired us to reach out to you, but I, the cover article about returning the national parks to Native American tribes. There's a very potent sentence in the piece about the West beginning in war, the American West started in war and ends in parks. Maybe I can just stay there for a minute and ask about that because it's a short, really powerful, here's the story. Here's how the American West starts war and look at what it is now, parks. Yeah. So I guess I want to ask about that juxtaposition and then how that move leads to the suggestion that you make in the piece. Yeah, I mean, Black Elk had an even more pithy way of putting it in. I don't know if it was in Black Elk Speaks or in an interview he gave, but he's like, yeah, the white man, you know, came to the our homelands and they made little boxes to put all the four-legged creatures in. Those are national parks. And made other separate boxes to put the Indians in, and those are reservations. And what's interesting is that the park process starting with Yellowstone in the early 1870s, exactly paralleled the reservation process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, parks were starting to be made right when treaty making was ending in the 1870s. And now, so in, the, in the period of time from the 1870s to the, to the present moment, over roughly 90 million acres were transferred into parks and national parks and national monuments and historic sites. The same exact time period from the 1870s to the present, tribes around the country lost an identical amount of land, around 87 million acres transferred out of native control and into white control through various government programs and policies like allotment and things like termination, things like that. A quick note about these terms with the help of David Lewis, a researcher, scholar, educator, and member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. Allotment was a top-down assimilation policy developed by non-native lawmakers under the guise of helping the tribes develop farming practices, despite tribes already having sufficient food sourcing methods. Under the act, each family received 160 acres of tribal land. Land that was left over was sold to non-native settlers. When allotment began in 1887, the total land held by tribes on reservations was 138 million acres. By the end of allotment in 1934, it was only 48 million. Termination refers to a set of colonial-style policies between 1945 and 1960 that eliminated federal management of Native Americans. The reasons were many. Lawmakers viewed assimilation as progress, so they forced Native Americans into large urban areas. Tribal reservations contained some of the last untouched land of the West, with valuable resources like timber and clean water resources and underwater mineral deposits. 
The Klamath tribe was one of the earliest to be terminated and removed from the reservation due to the natural resources. During termination, Congress terminated more than 100 tribes and small bands. 11,500 Native Americans lost their legal status, and nearly 1.4 million acres of trust land was stolen by the federal government. No terminated tribes improved economically, and poverty increased. Since the end of termination, 78 of the 113 terminated tribes have been recognized again by the U.S. government. 24 of these tribes are now considered extinct. 10 have state recognition, but not federal recognition, and 31 are landless. When I was 17, I was leaving home to go to college. You know, I swore up and down, I'm, I'm getting the hell out of here and I'm never coming back. I'm getting out of the reservation. I'm getting out of the town of Bemidji where I went to high school. Getting out of the north, I'm out. And within months, if not weeks, I yearned for it. And I, I yearned for sort of the only place that really made sense to me. And I mean that in terms of landscape, but also in terms of kinship and culture. In California, I don't feel like I have any relationship with the land. As much time as I spend camping and hiking and out in the desert, you know, maybe a Joshua tree with my kids and, and with people from there, I don't feel like the land recognizes me and I certainly don't recognize it. And it feels almost like an antagonistic relationship that I have with that landscape. Like it could care less about me. It couldn't care less. Whereas here, I feel like there is a relationship and I feel it, it feels reciprocal. I care about this place and I feel like it also in its own way cares about me. But it's funny, like just like a personal anecdote, you know, family story. Like when I was a kid, my mom was very successful. My mom is native. My dad's not. And my mom came from very humble origins to become an attorney. And she grew up in a two-room shack in the village of Bina, this tiny village of 140 people, which is mostly my family, on the Leech Lake Reservation. They had electricity, but they didn't have running water. She had to walk to the well down the hill pump the water, carry it back. They heated it up on a wood stove. Um, she grew up hard in ways that I can't possibly understand because I didn't grow up that hard. She went on to become an attorney and uh, the first Native American woman judge in the country. Um, she was really impressive. But when we were kids, we were forced. And, and I'm not using that word carelessly. We were forced in the fall, I was forced to harvest wild rice. Mm. And then later in the fall, I was forced to hunt. And then in the spring, I was forced to tap maple trees and make maple sugar and syrup. And in the summer, I was forced to pick berries. And I say forced because I hated all that crap when I was a kid. Hated it. <laughs> and my mom, like a lot of people do those things. Mm. And they do them because they have to. Because... Wild rice crop is a staple food source and people are so poor, like they rely on the wild rice to survive and they hunt because meat is expensive and they can't afford it. And so they hunt to fill their freezers, you know, same with berries and maple syrup is a more niche, I suppose. But so when I was done with all of that and I was like out of college and I was desperate to come back so I could be here for ricing season, so I could be here for hunting season, so I could be here for, for sugaring down not so much picking berries. I never really learned to like that very much. I would, I would, I yearned to do these things with my brothers and my sister and my cousins and, you know, extended family. And I asked her, I'm like, why did you make us do this stuff when I was a kid? You didn't have to, you could buy rice, you can afford meat, you know? She's like, well, I wanted to make sure that you knew how to survive the way that we'd always survived. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, the world went to hell out there and if you failed out there, you could at least come home and you could feed yourself, clothe yourself, you know, you'd be okay. And I was like, wow. I mean, she was deep gaming the whole thing, you know? <laughs> but it's interesting. I wondered if she was going to go in a different direction as you laid that story out. I wondered if you were going to, if you were going to say that she had an argument 
about connection to each other or no. culture. It was, but the argument was the survival. Really. That, that wasn't her argument. That wasn't it. I mean, those things happened. Without being raised that way, I wouldn't have the, the connection I have. I wouldn't have that sense of reciprocity with the place that I'm from. You know, we were unfortunate as Ojibwe people in lots of ways. The treaty process, the process of colonization hurt us in many ways. The allotment policy that started in the 1890s or late 1880s, rather, boarding schools, all of that stuff that happened to a lot of other tribes happened to us, too. We were really fortunate compared to some other tribes who were displaced or relocated for example, there are Ojibwe communities on the three largest, most important life-sustaining lakes in the state. On Mille Lacs Lake, Red Lake, or four, Leech Lake, and Lake Superior. <laughs> you know, we, we were able to remain in our homelands, and so we had access to the fish that sustained us, wild rice, <laughs> and things like that. So it's with that in mind that I approached this piece about national parks. Not all tribes were that lucky. Right. When they created Yellowstone, Shoshone, Bannock, Crow, and other tribes from that region were, were promised that they could still exercise their treaty rights. They could still travel through, hunt, gather, et cetera, in the park. Those promises, those assurances uh, were quickly forgotten, and natives were actively barred from entering parklands. You know, ditto for the Blackfeet and the subsequent creation of Glacier National Park in the early early 20th century. And this story was repeated throughout. Miwok people and other tribes in the Yosemite Valley were punted out of the valley. Some remained, but very few. And those tribes suffered immeasurably and in different ways than we did because they didn't have access and they didn't have the land to keep practicing both the things that sustained them calorically Mm-hmm. But also this sustain them culturally. I want to ask about the claim to land. I don't know if the right word is recognition, belonging, ownership based on prior habitation. That, that that argument seems like it can go like it's an argument that appeals strongly to me when I hear you make it. And from some groups, that argument feels really right. And from other groups, that argument scares me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see that. But you could reframe it, right? Okay. And preserve the morality of it, which is that, you know, that which was stolen should be returned. Right? Your kid boosts a 25 cents pack of gum from the, from the store. What do we as parents do? We're like, kid, not cool. You got to go back. You got to give it back. You got to apologize. For instance, like on Leech Lake, we suffered. So for those of you, the viewers who don't know, the federal government had this genius idea of how are we going to help the Indian? Well, you know, the way to make an Indian civilized is to teach them to be civilized. The main way you do that is by owning things. So instead of instead of the land within the reservation boundaries, you know, being held in common by the tribe, that's backwards and savage and stupid is holding, reservations are holding Indians back. What you really need to do is give Native people the chance to own a plot of land and to work it. So that was the allotment policy. So on my reservation, which is roughly 40 by 40 square miles, 40 miles by 40 miles, so it's more than that, they allotted individual parcels I can't remember if it was, I think it was 80 acres or maybe sometimes 120 to every head of household. And then once that was done, they're like, what to do with the surplus land? Because there was more land than there were people to, to give it to, you know? Okay. Well, then we'll just open that up to, to white people. They can buy it and they can live there. They can homestead it. So the result of this policy, which we didn't like and which we were coerced into agreeing with and which we were sort of at a moment of incredible political weakness, forced to adopt, 10% of the land within the boundaries of my reservation is owned by the tribe and owned by Native people. 10%. So when I moved to California, I'm like, I'm not moving to California unless I got a foot back on the res. And so I bought a little house at the end of this dirt road on a lake right like two, three miles from where I grew up that I really love. And when I was 
getting my mortgage, like a good American, you know, they have to do uh, title research. That bit of land, we moved from native control to a white owner in about 1903, right during allotment, mm-hmm. right exact at. And I was the first Indian to own it in a hundred years. And this is so, true on many, many reservations, oh, that situation. Yeah, of course. It's true. In most reservations, there's only some notable exceptions like Navajo Nation, Red Lake, some others that, that successfully fought allotment and the land is held in common. Very few reservations were successful like those ones were in, in fighting. And some others were too. Other reservations were completely terminated in Oregon, in Wisconsin. Like here first can, can get a sinister anti-immigrant kind of flavor. Absolutely. I mean, I hear what you're saying. So there's other ways to think about it. And that might make well, it both palatable and less, less sort of frisky, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I, I like that word frisky in this instance. Um, <laughs> I, I, th- I actually think title to land is complicated. Yeah. Uh, like it's hard to make it simple. And that's really what I think I'm trying to ask about is what should yeah. a claim to land be based on? And what should the status of that claim be? Does it mean ownership well, or does it mean something else? Right. I mean, even if, right, even if the United States only, at, at the minimum, honored its treaty commitments to the tribes it signed treaties with, if it only did that much, mm-hmm. that would be huge. So, for example, if the Lakota were once again the possessors of only the land that was remained unceded at the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie, mm-hmm. would mean that they would own the eastern, or sorry, the western third of South Dakota and some parts of North Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. All those lands were illegally taken from the Lakota. All of them. And they won in court. The Supreme Court, I think in 1980, decided and ruled in favor of the Lakota saying, yes, indeed, this land should be yours. Instead of giving it back, they're like, here's a bunch of money. And the Lakota are like, we don't want it. We want the land. We are not going to settle for cash, period. The cash is still sitting in an account because the government's unwilling to undo the effects of its theft. What about the poor white people living in Rapid City or, you know, the Black Hills or whatever? Well, you know, they can go to the government for redress. At a minimum, if they just honor treaties, that would be something. This is patently obvious to me and to most Native people that I know, that we are really good at honoring the treaties that we sign and by abiding by their terms. U.S. government, not so much. But the fact is, and this, these are the words of, of, a, of a Canadian Native person, not my words. I wish they were because they're brilliant. But he said, like, we made treaties, Native people made treaties with the government in order to find a way to live together. The government made treaties with tribes as a way not to. Yeah. So were the parks to be gifted back to a consortium of tribes, we have a pretty good track record of, of honoring our word and honoring our treaty. You know, we have a pretty, pretty, good, pretty good track record doing that. But, you know, it's complex. So were the tribes to come back to tribes, it would be complex. But you know what? You know what has also happened since this country was founded? 37 other states have been admitted to the union. That was complicated, but they did it. You know what else has happened? We gave the Panama Canal back to the country of Panama. Certainly complicated, but that happened. And then further afield, you know what else has happened? The British gifted Hong Kong and gave it sovereignty. These complicated administrative changes of character and scenery have happened many times. We can put a guy in the moon. Elon Musk can go to Mars. We can figure this out.
And so I just want to ask about the status of patriotism among Native Americans, given what you described gently as unsavory along the way. Outsiders think of this as deeply ironic, but it doesn't feel ironic to Native people. I mean, it's not the people that I know and people in my family and people I talk to. Like, Native people are deeply patriotic dual citizens, mm-hmm. right? Citizens of our tribal nations, which exist inside of the American Republic. That's not a contradiction for most Native people. My grandfather was incredibly patriotic, proud to have been a, a veteran of World War II, a combat veteran. Um, deeply patriotic. Um, wasn't a contradiction for him to be a native man from Leech Lake Reservation, you know, from the Ojibwe Nation or one of them, and to be an American at the same time. This country grew up around our native nations. It didn't extinguish them. Very hard for people to understand, really. And as you noted, and this drives people, people just, their eyes go wide. Native people have served in every war that America has fought in numbers exponentially higher than any other demographic by choice, not by draft. My grandfather and two of his brothers, he had all volunteered for World War II well before they would have been drafted. And they each served in a different branch because my, my great-grandmother's like, if you're all going to join up, then you're all going to be in different branches. There's a better chance of more of you coming home. They all came home, shockingly. One in the Navy, one in the Air Force, my grandfather in the second division, U.S. Infantry. But it's not surprising. And this is the thing that I, I, I argue for less overtly in Res Life and more clearly in the heartbeat of Wounded Knee is that America has always has has grown up and only makes sense in relation to native people and, and native history. And I can give like a rapid fire little thing, which, you know, not only did we serve with the revolutionary forces, not only did Oneida native people break the famine at Valley Forge and teach Washington and his troops how to, how to get nutrition from Indian corn. The very first treaty that the United States signed was with the Delaware. And one of the provisions of that treaty was promising that they could enter the Union as the 14th state if they protected America's western frontier from British incursions, like an end around through the Great Lakes and from behind, which the Delaware did, and prevented the British from attacking us on two fronts. After the Revolutionary War, when the, the government was looking around for a new form of government, like what kind of government do we want to have that's never before been seen on earth that's a true democracy, to whom did they turn for inspiration? They turned to the Iroquois Confederacy. And it's on them that our separation of powers was modeled. The judicial, you know, the judiciary, the executive, and the legis- legislative. That was from the Iroquois. So from the beginning, America came to be what it is in relation to, not in spite of, Native tribes. This extends to the modern day. Between 1965 and 1995, the United States Supreme Court heard more cases about federal Indian law than any other genre of law. More than civil rights, more than reproductive rights, more than women's rights, more than immigration, more than banking. So as America was trying to reimagine itself during and after civil rights, Vietnam War, Pentagon Papers, Watergate. It did so, at least in the courts, in relation to the question of native sovereignty. Even more recently, the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone XL, and now over Line 3 in Minnesota, pipeline fights, are not fights of, like, the white man trying to destroy Indians again. These are native people fighting for all Americans. The fight there is not over pipelines or not pipelines, but over what's more important, the common good or corporate profit. And it's Native people who are fighting that fight on behalf of all Americans. So from the beginning to now, America doesn't make sense unless you think of it in relation to Native lives being lived now and Native history.
Um, one of the last things Obama did in office was to enlarge and add protections to the Bears Ears National Monument. And also to Grand Staircase Escalante on the border of Utah and Arizona. It was one of the very last things he did by presidential order. Within two weeks of taking office, Trump undid those, and he undid them for one reason only. His very first feud when he became president was with the National Park Service, because the National Park Service manages the National Mall. And it was their duty to report the number of people at Trump's inaugural festivities. So they reported the real numbers, which Trump didn't like because not that many people showed up for the shit show that was his inauguration. So his very first feud is with the Park Service. And so he undid those two things because he could. So wouldn't it be better for parks if they were protected from the whims of this or that president? The shifting sort of the shifting sort of winds of federal policy, wouldn't it be better if this land were protected under a different structure? So that some asset like Trump can't just undo a park because he feels like it. I think it's good for the land and it's good for all Americans. It would be nice. I say this in the piece. America is, is wrestling right now. And we hear this, this debate being carried on in like arguments around critical race theory. We hear it in arguments around civil rights, but this country is trying to reckon with a complicated, violent, unsavory past. It's trying to find a way, at least some people in this country are trying to find a way, as Camus put it, to love one's country and still love justice. And my proposal would be one way to acknowledge the problems and mistakes and sins, I think we can call them of the past, not to pave over them, recognize them to atone. And so wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be nice to stand in Yellowstone knowing it's protected, to look up at El Capitan or Half Dome and know that you're looking up at Miwok land as well as American land and to know that you're standing once again on native land and you're looking up at a mountain, but you're also looking up at the practice of justice. That would be profound, you know. We were talking before about comments I've gotten for the Atlantic article, and there were some surly, silly rejections of my modest proposal. And it is modest that all the national parks and monuments be returned to a consortium of native tribes to manage on behalf of all Americans and park visitors. Someone said something to the effect of native people lost, get over it. You know, and I actually, I don't respond to comments very often, but I responded to that one, and I'm like, don't you think you're calling the game a little early? You may be done fighting, so if you surrender, I accept. But we're not done. You think we're done? We're not done. We even stopped. We're still at it. I feel like that's a big part of your argument in the two nonfiction books that we've already touched on a little bit is your, your argument is, uh, look, actually, we're moving towards thriving even more. And there have been steps which you yourself sound surprised by, but I wondered, and so so casinos, for example, figure in in an important way, from a small sure. court case to wealth generation, not in every case, but in a significant right. number of cases, they create their own problems sometimes, but they've also helped build power. So in a way, I guess I want to ask about your sense of flourishing among the yeah. tribes here. Well, so, the numbers don't lie. As of 1890, which was kind of a watershed moment, that's when the, the frontier was declared officially closed. There were a couple parks created before 1890, but really the movement took off around that time. Around the time they figured that, you know, nature was disappearing. The American landscape was being eroded by business and development and logging and mining and so on. Not untrue. It was, it was disappearing. That same year, 1890, the census, the story the census told was there were roughly 220,000 Native people left alive in the United States, down from a population at first contact between 15 and 30 million. Dark times. We were like American nature, I suppose, 
in danger of being snuffed out. But as of today, as of the last census, and this new one will be interesting to read once it's all compiled and published, there were over 5 million people who identified as Native in the United States, up from 220,000 130 years ago. That's a resurgence. That's a boom. There are more Native people in the United States than there are people who identify as Jewish American in the United States. There are twice as many people who identify as Native as there are people who identify as Muslim American. Those are important numbers to recognize that we have, we are growing. We are growing at a faster clip than any other demographic in this country. So in places like Montana, North Dakota for sure, maybe South Dakota, it's conceivable that in a hundred years they will be native majority states. White people are having fewer kids and the ones they're having are leaving. Native people are having more kids, not leaving. People can surrender now and save us all sorts of tension and stress. I don't really represent any tribal groups, but I am more than willing to accept the United States surrender to the Ojibwe people at this moment. I will give good terms. I'm not going to screw anyone over, but I'm, I'm here to accept people surrender if, they're, if they feel like it. Yeah, I can't speak on the United States behalf. And it's interesting to think about, in a way, a couple things you said along the way to this offer. One was you used the verb identify, people who identify as Native American. And maybe you can stay there for a minute, in part because some of the questions that came in were about the mechanics, in a way. You proposed that the management of the parks should go over to a consortium of tribes. And there's a complexity to the details, which your article doesn't, your essay doesn't try to go into, and I don't think we should go too much into now. In a way, as I read your piece, you mentioned the word policy before, and I don't think it's a policy piece. It points toward a policy, but it feels like it's before the policy. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit, though, about the identity Native American, in part because you address it in different ways in the books, uh, blood quantum, language. How do you see Native American identity uh, as a thing? Where do you see the limits and the substance? It's it's interesting and misunderstood, you know, how identity culture, sort of federal recognition and enrollment and all of that stuff works in the Native context. Unlike any other category of people in the United States, Mm -hmm. to be legally Native which is to be an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe is a legal political designation. It's a form of citizenship. Mm-hmm. Problematic how it's how one is a citizen or not of a tribe, and it varies from tribe to tribe, but most tribes, this was per US government policy, determine citizenship. Based, not based on language, not based on residency, not based on anything other than blood quantum. What percentage of Indian blood you have. And again, it varies. Some tribes, you just need to prove descent. Other tribes, you need to be a quarter. Other tribes need to be 51%. Other tribes, 50%. Other tribes are, are matrilineal. This is Tanawana Seneca. You're not really Seneca. You're not legally Seneca unless your mom you in, is passed down through your mother's line. So if your mom's not Seneca, you're not Seneca, even though you might be culturally Seneca. And that's, so that's the thing. It's like to be native legally is one thing. To be native culturally is another thing. To have a native identity is yet another thing. You know, so I explain it this way. Identities are always constructed, multiple, and overlapping. So me, identify as a man, as part of my identity, as a hetero, cisgendered man, I suppose. That's one, one identity. Overlapping with that is an identity as a native person. On top of that is my identity as a northerner. All of those things are constructed. Those are things that I sort of make for myself as a way to understand myself. Culture is not the same as identity. Culture is not, in, is not constructed. It's not a willful, conscious 
way of perceiving oneself. Culture is a web of relationships that you're born into. It's almost like it's almost like being a first language speaker of any language. You don't know the rules, you inherit the rules. Most of us, and I'm an English professor, would be hard pressed to sort of lucidly describe the rules that govern my language. Same thing for culture. Culture is a sort of, it's a water you swim in and you don't choose that water, but it shapes, shapes so much of who you are. You don't choose your cultures. You don't make your cultures. You're born into them. So that's very different than identity, very different than race. And race is just a, an imaginary construct. It's a category that people usually make for others. In the modest proposal, which when I hear the phrase modest proposal, I think satire. Right. I'm not satire. I'm for real. <laughs> it d- didn't sound like Swift. It sounded like you were for real about it and building up yeah. to a for real somewhat modest proposal. And also, if we think about the steps to get there, those wouldn't be modest steps. No, but like another interviewer, not as either genteel or conversational as as you, um, said like, well, this is a really radical proposal. Like what, you know, what, what made you think of having this radical proposal? I'm like, you know, I don't think it's very radical, honestly. Mm -hmm. What's radical is to steal land from other people, to pretend like you didn't steal it, to then exclude them from it, and then to mismanage it for, for about 100 years. That, to me, is radical. To sort of gift the parks back to a consortium of all the tribes in the United States to manage on behalf of all the people of this country and visitors to it is much less radical than sort of such brazen theft. Yeah. And so the the proposal isn't just a way to right a historical wrong vis-a-vis Native people, although my proposal would do that. It's also a proposal that would help protect the parks as they move into the future. It would be good for the land itself not just for Native people. Like, could we say your argument for the parks and what that, that argument rests on about prior habitation and a certain way of stewarding the lands, mm-hmm. would you be comfortable making that argument wherever it happens, in whatever part of the world you see a similar situation? Or is there something really exceptional about the relationship between the tribes that had been here and the U.S. government that formed that makes this argument especially salient here? I don't know. I mean, similar things to my proposal have already happened in other places, in New Zealand and in Australia in particular. There's a river in New Zealand which was just recognized as having a personhood. So all the protections an individual human person has, that river now has, for instance. Huge areas in in New Zealand were returned to Maori communities and, and Maori governments um, for them to manage like national parks, like on behalf of you know all the people of New Zealand. Same thing in Australia. So it's already happened in other places. But I would say this: that the United States is a unique creature, and it's not a very popular thing to say, which that doesn't make it untrue to say that. This country, its existence is founded on taking native land, to, so like expropriating native land to be then improved and monetized by expropriating the freedom of African-American human beings by enslaving them to work the land stolen from native people, all financed with northern money in New York City. So that's that's how this country was literally built on land stolen from tribes and worked by enslaved African people until we reckon with that. So so like this whole like, you know, like culture war that sort of the right is trying to start, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good war to have because you can't understand this country's founding documents, which refer in the Declaration of Independence refers to Native people as merciless Indian savages. 
Yeah. Like you can't understand the Declaration of Independence or the subsequent Constitution without understanding and engaging with critical race theory. They're racial documents that disempower enslaved African-Americans and push us and exclude us from the provisions of the Constitution. All of the protections of the Bill of Rights and all that stuff didn't apply to us. We were outside of it. Similar arguments and similar things are, are actually already happening in other places, but also America is uniquely different. You know how, like, you're a father. You know how, like, when your kid does something, does something wrong, and they carry themselves differently mm. when they know they've done something wrong. It's like they've, they've been bad, and it's almost like a weight around their necks. Their postures changes. They act, they lash out because they, they lost their dignity for a moment, and in a small way, maybe. And it's up to us as their parents to help them regain it by recognizing what they've done, by owning it and moving on. When I look out at this country and I look out at sort of, it's in aggregate, but when I look out in particular recently, like at the state of Texas mm. in their efforts to sort of restrict voting rights and restrict women's rights to choices over their own bodies. When I see Trump's behavior, when I see sort of, I see a country dying mm. to regain and find its own dignity and unable, unable to find a way to get it back and suffering as a result, suffering all sorts of agonies over racial, racial and economic justice, over reproductive rights, over all sorts of things. And it makes me incredibly sad that like my grandfather, this country I love, and I love this country. I love the United States of America. Probably not quite as much as I love my tribe, but still. I, it makes me incredibly sad to see the shape it's in. Yeah. You know, and I feel like I, I'm here and available to help it recognize, admit, make up for, and move on from the things it's done. Like a good father. Yeah. This country doesn't need a great white father anymore, you know, in the old language. Like it needs a great red father, what it needs. <laughs> I'm not the person to do that. I'm not a politician. I, I should never run for office, but it needs somebody. conversation with David in April 2021, there have been a number of significant changes to Native representation and federal lands. Deb Holland, a member of Laguna Pueblo, was sworn in as the Secretary of the Interior. This department is responsible for the management and conservation of most federal land and natural resources, including the Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the National Park Service. And Chuck Sams, a longtime member of the leadership of Oregon's Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation, and also the board chair of the Oregon Cultural Trust, was nominated by President Biden to serve as the director of the National Park Service. He will report to Deb Holland. As we near the conclusion of this episode of The Detour, here's a couple of questions to walk with. What does it mean to respect or manage land or to be in right relation to it? How did you grow up thinking about your relation to the land? And how would you like people seven generations after us to think about it? 
And now, Between Ribbon and Root by Christine Dupre. His hands are grubby and his nails ragged, lined with honest and not-so-honest dirt. Right now, he's scrabbling for something, shoulder-deep in the wetlands we're visiting. Eventually, with a triumphant shout, he pulls his arm from the muck, waving an object that looks a lot like coyote scat or a desiccated apple in his dripping hand. Wapato, my Cowlitz Ashkenazi kid, has just pulled up Wapato. The very word an exclamation. His face is oriented to the sun, his skin as finely poured as a peach, and though he's now grown, a young man of 24, I can remember clearly what a beautiful baby he was. Times with him are tough lately. This baby shine melts my heart. Let me tell you a bit about winter seed. Let me tell you about early winter walks with my son and the bitter root that is the fear I might lose him. About a tenuous but rooted faith that he can, like his people, dig deep in spring even from dormancy. That he can pull sustenance from the muck. Once I had conviction that my child contained within him the seed of remembering, and so the seed of his own regeneration, but my faith is flagging. Only recently granted its federal land, the Cowlitz Indian tribe was, until the year 2000, a non-recognized people. This means that only 16 years ago, we were still neither formally recognized by the federal government nor bestowed any of the mixed blessings that that entails. Nevertheless, we managed a successful tribal cohesion. In late December 2014, I joined hundreds of my Cowlitz relatives to celebrate and bless a site probably passed while traveling on Interstate 5, Exit 16 at La Center in Washington State. We gathered to celebrate a future reservation on soggy but tree-lined acreage just seconds from the freeway. You could hear its hum as the drums beat out a blessing for this place in this auspicious time. You've seen it, no doubt, the sign that reads Cowlitz Reservation, as you make your way north on I-5 to visit a Seattle relative, and you've wondered perhaps just what that newly minted reservation is about. Or maybe you think you know precisely what that reservation is about, because you know a Vegas-style casino is going in there and has, in fact, broken ground. I wonder how you feel about that. On Monday, March 9, 2015, Stanley Speaks, the regional director from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, signed the final document to establish our first ever reservation. I was there then, too, and so were my ancestors. With the stroke of a pen, the federal government now holds in trust 152 acres of property in Clark County on behalf of the Cowlitz tribe. It took 12 years for the signing, and in the meantime, there have been appeals from LaCenter's card rooms, Clark County, and the city of Vancouver, to name only some of the descent we've met along the way. Though 12 years might seem like a long time to secure some land, the Cowlitz are used to protracted struggle. We have been actively engaged with the government for nearly 160 years, ever since we refused to negotiate a treaty with Washington's territorial governor, Isaac Stevens, in 1855. As I grapple with the problem of my own and my people's history, I've come to believe that the preservation of the cowlitz and the sustenance of our community relies on a persistent enactment of the motions of the everyday and upon a quiet, lived awareness, one I have grown to understand can bring a seed of cultural continuity up from the ground and back to the light. Perhaps it can even bring a child back to the light. Mine is with me right now, just over two decades old, and suffering. Cowlitz people were not agriculturalists. They were gatherers, relying on a seasonal bounty of root, fish, and berry. Their lives were characterized by seasonal migrations, long walks to where the food lay just below the snow's melt, chasing spring up the mountain. This is, in part, why my son and I now walk, to find edible and usually indigenous plants, which are surprisingly abundant in almost every Portland nook, cranny, and yard. In this, he always knows the way. He knows where the blooms are, where the berries burst, where the brand new growth is ready to eat. Our walks have taken us deep into Forest Park, 
to a culvert off North Willamette Boulevard to a neighbor's rock wall in order to grab an especially lush bunch of little bittercress. When he's not gathering plants, my boy is less sure-sighted, more likely to drink, to argue, to fight, to be beaten, to disappear. Our walks allow for time to flow and time to be forgotten. There's little to be said and much to be accomplished. Together we can do what our people have always done, and together we remember. You can find a link to David's article in our show notes at OregonHumanities.org, where you'll also find suggested readings related to today's show handpicked by our staff. For more on Oregon's Native history, visit David Lewis's ndnhistoryresearch.com, as well as the book First Oregonians. tour is made possible by Oregon Humanities' partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can support this show by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Davis. Our producer is Kieran Bond. Our editor and engineer is Dave Friedlander. Additional thanks to David Lewis, Ben Waterhouse, Alexandra Bugden-Powell, and Karina Brisky. Thank you for being with us, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.